2014, the Wilderness Society published a blog post titled Six Wilderness Cartoons from the 1960s. Of the six cartoons, three in particular stand out. In the Washington Daily News, a boy and his dog sit atop a cliff overlooking a forest with a single, almost unnoticeable road running through it. A wisp of clouds halos a mountain in the distance. The boy says to his dog, Gee, I hope our kids get to see this. In the Christian Science Monitor, a shoeshine boy notices a headline in a customer's newspaper. Congress debates wilderness bill. The boy asks, What's a wilderness, mister? And deep in the belly of national politics, the Washington Post depicts a balding, overweight, middle-aged man atop a lifeguard chair labeled House of Representatives at the edge of a beach. <sighs> he yawns. It sure is dull around here. Meanwhile, thugs with knives and shovels, a very evil-looking octopus, and even the sea itself attack personifications of the drug bill, UN bonds, migrant workers bill, and of course, the wilderness bill. A woman representing District of Columbia Home Rule lies dead outside a shack labeled Committee Cabanas with a knife in her back. The purpose was to show by pointing out cartoons from popular magazines and newspapers how public opinion toward the wilderness was shifting from an attitude of indifference brought on by modernism and advanced industrialization to one of deep concern over our increasing separation from the natural world. Maybe there's some truth to this reading, but if the course of environmental legislation over the subsequent 50 plus years is any indication then all that concern for nature, all that outrage over congressional impotence, have involved an awful lot of spitting into the wind. What's more striking is that these cartoons seem to represent the unfortunate history of emotional appeals, moral outrage, and political sniping in national discourse. Indeed, that discourse often seems less like a collection of dialogues and more like a set of parallel monologues in which each participant makes a very loud point and then drowns out what the next speaker has to say by jamming their fingers into their ears and reciting la 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 la. At the end of part one in this series on the North American coyote, which we're calling Simple Coyote Math, we noted that hunters, ranchers, foresters, and other zealots of coyote extermination responded to the Bureau of Biological Survey's 1936 ban on killing national park predators with resentment and spite, placing traps right at the borders of national parks. We pointed to this response as a sign of fanaticism, a redoubling of efforts despite mounting evidence that attempts to exterminate coyotes are ineffective and often counterproductive. Well, today, we bring you part two in that series. And in case you need a little refresher, we're structuring it according to the rules that Chuck Jones used to govern his writing of the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon franchise. 
For rule number one, the roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep beep, we took you through the story of the kebab deer population, in which a predator control policy seemingly resulted in massive ecological disruption. For rule number two, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products, we described a particularly vicious trap called a coyote getter that was just as likely to kill our maimed coyotes as it was to harm other curious animals, including humans. And then there was rule number three. The coyote could stop any time if you were not a fanatic. Which brings us up to date regarding the ways in which extermination zealots responded to the ban on the killing of park predators. And lest we give the impression of one-sidedness, let us point out right now that each of the aforementioned cartoons in its own way condescends that any rational person with a micron of moral fortitude understands the importance of wilderness preservation. Such rhetoric seems unlikely to persuade anyone who feels otherwise. Indeed, it seems quite likely to alienate even those who would agree on the importance of wilderness preservation, but who might feel that there are better ways to go about it than those outlined in the wilderness bill. But political cartoons, of course, are not known for their subtlety. Indeed, the rare sketch that pursues rational discourse tends to come across as well, a bit spineless. Just take the one with the boy who hopes his kids get to see the wilderness. It's not perfect, but of the three, it is easily the most nuanced. It is also the easiest to overlook and the least provocative. That quiet inclusion of a single road running into the forest hardly even registers. And let's say it does. That road still has far less chance of making its point than, well, say, a pair of hairy arms reaching from the darkness to strangle a woman identified as Wilderness Bill. But such condescension and aggressive judgmental rhetoric perpetuates what political scientist Kathy Kramer has described as the politics of resentment in her 2016 book of the same title. Consider the backlash in response to the holier-than-thou tone of the conservationist and anti-predator control movement in 1970s Los Angeles. You're listening to Bestiary. I'm Eric Botts, and here's Meg Sipis with rule number four. No dialogue ever, except beep beep. On September 27, 1972, the LA Times proclaimed, County declares war on coyotes, pulling Los Angelinos, who had been mostly unaffected by coyotes, into policy debates that government officials and coyote-prone communities such as Antelope Valley had been engaged in for years. Over the coming weeks, public debate in the paper employed sprinklings of science and armchair economics and a deluge of emotional appeals and ad hominem attacks. The pro-coyotes focused on coyote biology and behavior 
the anti-coyotes on financial distress that such predators imposed on ranchers. The debates moved from finances, to the rights of humans versus wild animals, to pure, unfiltered emotional frenzy. By 1975, more coyotes had moved into urban and suburban areas. One day, in LA's Pacific Palisades, William Utley let his cat out. And it never came back. A neighbor had seen a pack of coyotes on the street, driving Utley to a gory conclusion. On April 13th, he wrote passionately to the LA Times, Do we have to wait until these vicious beasts kill a one-year-old child or two? Five rapid responses, under the headline, Coyotes in the City of Los Angeles, criticized his emotional response. But on August 26, 1981, Utley's prediction came true. Three-year-old Kelly Keene had been watching TV in her home in Glendale, California, when she walked outside and encountered a coyote. It attacked taking her in its mouth and dragging her across the street. Her father gave chase. When the coyote dropped Kelly, he rushed her to the hospital. She died hours later of a broken neck and blood loss. That cause of death came into question almost 30 years later. This is New York. There are 52 channels. I know I heard them all today. In 2004, former child star turned animal rights activist Pamela Ferdin attended a Glendale City Council meeting in a shirt splattered with fake blood to oppose more targeted coyote extermination. She accused Kelly's parents of fabricating the coyote attack as a cover-up, of what she wouldn't say. I could only show him that getting your hair cut doesn't hurt. That's it. What's it? You need to show him that getting your hair cut won't hurt. Well, how's he gonna do that? Another former actor turned animal rights activist, Michael Bell, was more forthright. He claimed to have found discrepancies and missing documents in the hospital records. He said she had not died from a broken neck, but by blunt trauma, far more likely caused by human hands than coyote jaws and teeth. Kelly's parents responded immediately producing their daughter's death certificate, which listed the coyote as the cause of death. The investigation never reopened, and nothing more came of Ferdin's and Bell's accusations. Bell never produced any of this alleged research for public scrutiny, and Ferdin never claimed to have done any research in the first place. But at the same time, the Keens seemed to have been oddly prone to coyote attacks. At the time of Kelly's death, she was the only human ever reported killed by a coyote in North America. In 2009, a Canadian folk singer became the second. 
But the LA Times account of Kelly's death also noted that her father, Robert Keane, said his two other children had both been attacked by coyotes in 1977 and 78. A 2004 study out of the University of California, Davis, however, documents just 35 attacks from 1978 to 2003 in California. The Humane Society highlights how absurdly rare such attacks are, claiming more people are killed by errant golf balls and flying champagne corks each year than are bitten by coyotes. And UrbanCoyoteResearch.com documents only 142 coyote attack incidents resulting in 159 human victims in 14 U.S. states and four Canadian provinces. For better context, according to Paul Rendez's 1999 book, Tracking in the Art of Seeing, domestic dogs killed over 300 people in the U.S. between 1979 and the late 90s. Compare that to the two recorded human deaths by coyotes in North America ever, and one gets the sense that when it comes to human death, we blind ourselves to the risks of domestic animals and become rabid over those of wild animals. None of this rules out that a coyote may have killed Kelly Keene, but the waters are frustratingly muddy. At any rate, after the LA Times announced her death, city residents and the paper itself, who had been so vocal about the matter of Antelope Valley's coyote trapping expenditures, so judgmental of William Utley's reaction to his lost cat, fell silent. No letters to the editor, no opinion pieces, no editorials. With the public perhaps too stunned to speak, the government moved in. The Glendale Commissioner formed an urban coyote management program, launching an 80-day trapping and shooting spree on all coyotes within a half mile of the attack, ultimately killing 55. In lieu of dialogue, the government engaged in localized blood vengeance. All coyotes would pay for Kelly's death. Okay, so short break. We will be right back, though. I promise. Rule number five. The roadrunner must stay on the road. Otherwise, logically, he would not be called the roadrunner. The coyote has been identified, or misidentified, throughout American history as prairie wolf, Spanish fox, Jackal, brush wolf, cased wolf, little wolf, and American jackal. Its Latin name, Canis latrans, translates to barking dog. The late author, naturalist, wildlife protector, and photographer Hope Ryden spent two years in remote areas of Montana and Wyoming, studying the behaviors of the elusive and maligned coyote, collecting observations that culminated in her 1975 book, God's Dog, a celebration of the North American coyote. Witnessing the disparity between perceptions of the coyote and its natural behavior, she concluded, most of what we know of the coyote comes from creative literature, not from scientific or even anecdotal observation. Mark Twain thought he knew something of the coyote. Referring to it 
in his classic Western travelogue, Roughing It, as, quote, a living, breathing allegory of want. He is always poor, out of luck, and friendless. The meanest creatures despise him, and even the fleas would desert him for a velocipede. He is so spiritless and cowardly that even while his exposed teeth are pretending a threat, the rest of his face is apologizing for it. Chuck Jones' memoir, Chuck Amuck, cites this section of Twain's book as having been particularly influential to his creation of Wile E. Coyote. And in fact, Twain's allegory of want is perhaps the forefather of all American popular culture coyotes. Curiously, this cowardly, poor, out-of-luck, and friendless wretch is among the most resilient creatures in North America. In an interview with National Geographic, Dan Flores, author of Coyote America, explains the coyote's peculiar evolutionarily derived strategy for surviving under persecution, which it shares with its cousin, the jackal, and which both canids share with humans. Having developed alongside larger, more dominant and persecutorial canids, coyotes and jackals can survive as loners or pack animals. When they're persecuted, says Flores, they tend to abandon the pack strategy and scatter across the landscape in singles and pairs. Extermination campaigns drive them to this strategy. We thin their numbers in one region, they scatter and spread into new areas. And what's more, explains Flores, pressures in coyote populations alter their reproductive biology. You see, coyotes howl to take stock of their populations, and if their calls go unanswered, then their bodies naturally respond by, in some extreme cases, more than doubling their normal five to six pup litters to as many as 16. In biblical terms, to persecute the coyote is to stubbornly kick against the pricks. Twain describes the coyote as kin to Native Americans. Quote, He will eat anything in the world that his first cousins, the desert-frequenting tribes of Indians, will, and they will eat anything they can bite. Twain goes on to say, The coyote of the deserts beyond the Rocky Mountains has a particularly hard time of it, owing to the fact that his relations, the Indians, are just as apt to be the first to detect a seductive scent on the desert breeze and follow the fragrance to the late ox it emanated from as he is himself. It is considered that the coyote and the obscene bird, the raven, and the Indian of the desert testify their blood kinship with each other and that they live together in the waste places of the earth on terms of perfect confidence and friendship while hating all other creatures and yearning to assist at their funerals. Well, all due respect, Mr. Twain, but it is considered that white Euro-Americans have a penchant for creating such waste places and forcing other humans and animals into them. If the natives of this continent became scavengers, it is because we drove them to it. It is considered also that our victims survive despite this persecution. 
And if history is any indication of character, well then, it might be best not to ask what it says of the role that we play at the funerals of others. And it might be best not to ask with what marked beasts we testify our own kinship. Rule number six, all action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters, the Southwest American desert. The coyote is a living, breathing allegory of survival. It is also an allegory of persecution. Like humans, it can persevere in deserts, but to call this its natural environment is a gross oversimplification. The coyote's natural environment is anywhere it can avoid tyranny and persecution. The former had once served as checks and balances, relegating the coyote to grasslands, deserts, and semi-arid regions of sagebrush. But when we pushed their natural competitors and oppressors out of other areas, the coyote moved in. Being a natural wanderer and opportunist, coyotes walk anywhere from 3 to 10 miles per day always in search of greener pastures and better food sources. Over the past century, the coyote has found opportunity in cities and suburbs. This might at first seem counterintuitive. After all, demonization of coyotes has led us to hunt and kill them with extreme prejudice, so you might expect them to avoid the dense human populations found in cities. But city dwellers are less likely to regard coyotes with the hatred of a rancher so we're less likely to kill them on sight. And laws against firing guns within city limits offer coyotes a layer of legal protection. On top of that, in cities, they can scavenge our garbage and find plenty of rodents on which to prey. This YouTube video shows the female coyote named Maxine by visitors. She had lived in the cemetery for years, but Maxine in 2010, Residents of Erie, Pennsylvania, my hometown, began to issue reports of a coyote in the Erie Cemetery. At first, calls to trap and relocate or kill her dominated the discussion. In fact, this seems to have been the cemetery's initial plan. But as the debate flared, experts and residents pushing for her to be left alone prevailed. And she apparently managed to endear herself to cemetery staff, who named her Maxine. Tracy Graziano, currently producing a documentary on coyotes for the Tom Ridge Environmental Center in Erie, responded to calls to trap Maxine via the Erie Times News in 2010. Quote, I find both the public's and the Erie Cemetery's reaction both ignorant and disappointing. We can and do live beside these creatures every day. Most of us just don't know it. Coyotes are here to stay we might as well get used to living with them. Around the same time, she wrote to the cemetery with alternatives to trapping Maxine, focusing on education and outreach to discourage the public from feeding her and the use of non-lethal deterrents, like shooting the coyote with paintballs, rock salt, or a pellet gun to teach her to stay away from humans. 
Over the next seven years, Maxine lived in the cemetery, mostly undisturbed and without major incident. She became something of a mascot. Groundskeepers and visitors appreciated her presence. One Facebook post from Erie PA Life linked to an Erie Times news article about Maxine, which has since been taken down. The post received a slew of comments, which the following two sum up rather succinctly. The first, go Max, go! And the second, run Max, run! Four exclamation points follow. One reply, however, strikes a different tone. I really wish you'd take this down. Every time it gets posted on high-profile pages or on the news, the cemetery turns into a circus. I actually had a guy come up to me to ask about the coyote while I was paying my respects at my mom's grave. This is where the lesson about Maxine begins. In 2016, another coyote showed up. The two mated, and Maxine gave birth in early 2017. Around the same time, other coyote stories emerged around Erie. On January 5, police put out a call for the public to report any coyote sightings after a dog was killed by what may have been a coyote in an Erie suburb. Then a pack of five approached a residential area. Four left pretty quickly, but one lingered. When a woman tried to shoot away, the coyote became aggressive. Eventually, police arrived and, suspecting it was rabid, shot and killed the animal. As it turned out, the coyote was not rabid, but such events must have resonated as visitors to the cemetery reported that, with the birth of her pups, Maxine and her mate had become territorial around dogs. When she had her pups, she became far more aggressive. Um, our phone right around Memorial Day started ringing off the hook. The people complaining about the aggressive nature of, of behavior of the coyote coming after them. Um, so for the safety of people on the grounds, we had to take some action. On June 3rd, 2017, Clark Kubler, the cemetery's general manager, pleaded on her behalf. Please leave the coyotes alone. We enjoy and we like Maxine. The staff enjoys her and the staff named her, so we definitely don't want to do anything that hurts her. But that's secondary to our responsibility to our visiting families. Ultimately, they called in a private trapper. After several weeks of failure to catch the family, one reader of the Erie Times wrote, Rule number one is not to feed them so that they go in the trap. The implication being that if people feed the coyotes, they won't be interested in the food used in the traps. To be totally candid, she remarks, if people continue to feed them, they will be shot. We have word from the trapper that he captured two adults and three pups. We believe that's all the coyotes that were here. Uh, there was some question as to whether it was a fourth or not, but our, our groundskeepers have not observed any other activity, so we believe that they've all been removed. Maxine, the, the fate of Maxine, her mate, and her pups is unclear. The original plan had been to relocate her, but in an Erie Times article, Kubler claims not to know where the coyotes were taken or what the trapper did with them. Elsewhere in the article, he equivocates, first saying, people think that we're heartless and that we slaughter these animals, and that just isn't the case at all. 
But then he concludes, I'm happy that people can move around the cemetery grounds without fear, but I'm not happy about how it was resolved. He has refused to name the trapper, presumably to protect them from the frenzied reactions of the public. This seems appropriate, as does the cemetery's decision to hire the trapper in the first place, given that the game commissioner had said previously, if called in, he would almost certainly have had to kill the coyotes. Nonetheless, Kubler's claim that the trapper wouldn't say what he did with the coyotes strikes us as admission by omission. But really, that's not the point. What stands out to us is not the outcome of the situation or the decisions leading to that outcome, but rather the attitudes and behaviors that forced those decisions. Coyotes are widespread throughout Pennsylvania. They frequently find their ways into the state's cities and suburbs, and they rarely stay long in residential areas because the residents don't want them there and go out of their way to chase them off marking clear boundaries that the coyotes have no choice but to understand. Maxine's presence in the Erie Cemetery, though, had the allure of romance and mysticism. Here was a creature long associated in native myth with the dead, living among the city's dead. She became more than a mascot. People loved her. They would often visit the cemetery not to visit graves, not merely to walk among the headstones, nor for any of the other reasons people go to cemeteries, but just on the hopes of seeing Maxine, of taking her picture, or filming her, or feeding her. You see, far from pellet guns and rock salt, far from the educated public that Tracy Graziano had called for, Maxine's celebrity drew cameras, bowls of dog food, leftover dinner scraps. As Kubler points out, given a bit of non-lethal hostility, Maxine would probably have moved on within a year or two. Instead, the public encouraged her to stay, to build a den, to bring a mate, to establish a family. More than Maxine herself, the cemetery's visitors marked her territory for her, telling her that this was not just a safe space, but one in which she could raise a family, one in which often she wouldn't even need to hunt because these friendly humans were happy to present her with offerings of food. Coyotes typically see us as neutral creatures until we signal otherwise. But they tend to view other canids as threats to their territory and safety. Dinner scraps and non-threatening interactions might have brought her guard down over those first six years. But with the birth of her pups, any dog near her den needed to be warned off. Just as we communicate the boundaries of our residential areas to potentially threatening predators, Maxine communicated her own boundaries to potentially threatening dogs. Whatever has become of Maxine and her family, the responsibility does not lie with the trapper, nor does it lie with the cemetery officials who hired him. It rests with the humans who invited her to build her home there in the first place.
Stay tuned after the credits for a preview of the final installment of Simple Coyote Math. Bestiary is produced by us, Meg Sipas and Eric Botts. Rigel Kaufman provided editorial assistance for this episode and the others in this series. I write and produce our music, and I also edit the show. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. And if you're interested in producing an episode or pitching a story to us, you can email me at eric at bestiarypod.org, or you can hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at bestiarypod. Catch the next and final episode of this series in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening. Next time on Bestiary, the laws of mathematics fail to apply. Despite the high kill count, despite bounty incentives, despite excluding coyotes from wildlife protection laws, and despite the blood sport into which many coyote hunts devolve, coyote numbers continue to flourish. In the world of coyotes, the truth lies as much in myth as it does in fact. Coyote may be a thief, or fool, or hero, or all three at once. The Comanche present him as savior, the Navajo a god. He is best known, though, as a trickster. If you die, you will come back to life. When he opened his eyes, shadowy figures danced around him, old friends that had long since passed into the land of the dead. 